My guest today is Professor Ulrike Mementia, who is Professor of Finance and Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research area of focus is the intersection of economics and finance, and why and how individuals make decisions, specifically how individuals make mistakes and systematically biased decisions. Welcome, Ulrike. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. Um, so I want to start with one of your recent papers, which is really topical, exposure to grocery prices and inflation expectations. You say that we show that consumers rely on the price changes of goods in their personal grocery bundles when forming expectations about aggregate inflation. You say our analysis uses novel representative microdata that uniquely match individual expectations, detailed information about consumption bundles, and item level prices. This is very intuitive for me. Um, yeah, so inflation expectations, uh, groceries is something that we have to always deal with. When you go to the grocery store, you have some, some memory from the previous visit. And as, as prices change, uh, you use that uh, to, to set expectations. And I, I remember, uh, I just skimmed the paper, Ulrike, I remember you saying there's some sort of gender, um, not, not bias, but gender exposure here because females tend to shop uh, grocery shop more than males, and, and hence they have a different expectation. So, so, so what do you find from the data here? Yeah, um, so you're referring in that last comment to a related paper with the same data we wrote for the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which has also been published since. Um, so, you know, um, we're starting off from exactly the aspect that seems to be also intuitive to you, that um, the price signals we see in our daily life as we're walking around, doing purchases and so on, they really, you know, these are really price changes that resonate with that, that get anchored in our memory. And whether or not they're really big purchases or smaller ones, you know, like the milk and butter purchases in, in, in groceries, doesn't matter as much as standard economic um, models would say. And also their predictive value for general inflation trends doesn't matter as much as maybe some rational model of belief formation would say. So what I mean is that um, when we look at people's bundles of purchases every day and how much the inflation in those bundles was, I mean, focusing on, on groceries and, and other items that are on our data, they are strongly predictive of how people think about inflation in general. And um, when we try to kind of weigh them by how big the purchase was, was it just a few cents or dollars or was it a bigger purchase? Doesn't matter as much. It's just more how often do you see that price and note your brain notices, oh, that went up again, that went up again. And then the second thing, what I meant was how predictive, the, that second thing is about, you know, differences in prices in, in, in influencing general inflation trends. So you may know that, you know, groceries are uh, infamously super volatile. They're so volatile that um, when, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts together the CPI, that measure of inflation we all use, they actually take out, out, out of the core CPI, they take groceries out because they say it's just noise. It doesn't matter. Well, it turns out that that noise is what really influences us. So that's the first thing we wanted to kind of um, show people and make people more aware of. You can talk all you want about statistics of different components of, you know, the consumption bundle that goes into inflation measures. At the end of the day, whatever we see is what matters most to us, whatever we see in our daily lives. 
and then kind of to to you know move over to um, the gender specific aspects you alluded to in the end well traditionally you know i think in, in sync with traditional gender roles it has been more the woman than the man uh, the wife than the husband in, in 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 heterosexual couples who has been doing the grocery shopping and we think that helps explain this puzzle which people at the fed have observed for decades that women are always more pessimistic about inflation so if you do surveys about inflation in a lot of their data sets women always come up uh, come out as having their inflation expectations up by one or two percent compared to males and people have always been wondering why is that well, from the insights of our papers, it makes total sense. If you infer inflation from these grocery prices and also knowing that we tend to anchor more on the increases and tend to disregard the decreases, decreases um, which other researchers have, I mean, many researchers have shown already, then, yeah, it naturally comes out that the grocery shopping women are the ones who would have higher inflation expectations. And indeed, what we're able to show in that last paper is um, it's not an inherent gender bias, once you control for who does how much grocery shopping, you see that that's driving the differences, not male versus female for any biological or other reason. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So it's an information issue, not a gender bias. And it makes a lot of practical sense, right? So, so when you look at capital goods like computers and automobiles, there's a lot of quality changes over time. So price is not necessarily a good proxy mm. for inflation. There's groceries are. I mean, tomato is a tomato. <laughs> there is a lot of quality change in it. Uh, and hence, uh, I, would, I would imagine grocery prices are really a good proxy for inflation. Is that true? Yeah, that... Uh, that's a good point so that we don't have to deal with that issue of where their quality changes and are those observable or unobservable and how do you account for them which you have to deal with um, and you know analyzing computer purchases for example um, that that was a great contrast so for that reason i think they're an excellent um, you know subject uh, of study however um, i think initially people might have deterred us from studying grocery prices for the very reason i mentioned initially oh grocery prices are special they're super volatile they don't even enter the core cpi measure why are you studying them well it turns out that that might all be true but it's still what people anchor you know the impressions on that's really what gets anchored in their memory and we should take it seriously for that reason if the fed you know in 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 central banks around the world um, decision makers are asking themselves, how can we influence inflation expectations? All these tricks, are this toolbox we have with monetary policy announcement, etc. They don't seem to work the way, you know, we want them to work. People still build up inflation fears or deflationary fears at other times in, in ways that, that are disentangled from what we do. And so our message is just look at people's reality. If in their day-to-day -day life prices are going up, they will have inflationary fears. And it doesn't matter whether that's a you know, valid component of the consumption bundle when measuring inflation or not. Their day-to-day -day life is what matters. Right. I wondered, uh, Ulrike, so household size was a factor. So, you know, um, when there are two people in the house, maybe we do shopping once a month. I don't know, um, maybe <laughs> uh, once every six weeks. Uh, but when you have a lot of people in the home, uh, maybe you do more frequent shopping. 
Is that is that a consideration in how people figure out expectations and, and inflation? Uh, yeah, so we found that the frequency does matter. We're trying to kind of disentangle it ideally from a household size. We, you know, we don't want to be confounded by are you, you know, a two people couple or a couple with four kids, like a six people household. We kind of try to control for these things, but but you're right, they're related. Either way, um, you're exactly right that the frequency matters. And I have to admit, I didn't initially anticipate the direction it would go, although it makes sense exposed. Initially, I thought, oh, these frequent shoppers, they constantly see grocery prices. And so they will be super influenced by the grocery prices. Well, that may be true, but as a result of frequency shopping, you don't see as many increases, right? So like if you go only every four weeks to a big grocery outlet, as chances are there are going to be a bunch of bigger increases. Like day to day, it might not be so much. And since you're kind of averaging in your head the observed percentage increases, roughly speaking, um, um, it, it, it turns out to be the case that these infrequent shoppers tend to see larger price increases on average, and as a result, tend to be uh, more affected or more biased upwards than the frequent shoppers. Yes, yeah, so, so I want to go into one of your older papers. It's a different topic, the role of managerial overconfidence. You see a large and growing body of evidence suggests that a substantial share of top corporate execs exhibit sim symptoms of overconfidence in their decisions. Uh, the main measure of CEO or confidence used here has been the willingness of CEOs to keep their personal wealth undiversified by holding stock options until very close to expiration. And other measures of CEO confidence include earnings forecasts, several responses, and even psychometric tests. Um, yeah, so I can I can relate to that this uh, to this little bit. So I was thinking, in a in a in a broad sense, um, exercising an option early is suboptimum, you know, in a very broad sense. Uh, but if you have a lot of your wealth uh, stuck in a in a single asset. It has a risk concentration, and hence that may not be an optimum decision to keep it there. Uh, but that's what we find, right, typically? Yeah, exactly. Um, at least for that subset of uh, overconfident managers. I should maybe start one step before we go to the, to the nitty-gritty you're diving in, which is right on point, and, and say that... Um, you know, as you know, having been at the University of Chicago, the tradition of economics is a very rational one. And when people started to acknowledge that humans, you know, are humans and are subject to biases and make mistakes, um, the the economic research um, opened up to that notion, mostly with respect to individual consumers, individual investors, kind of thinking, okay, these kind of you know, non-professional decisions, maybe they're affected by biases, but managers, particularly CEOs I'm studying, they can't be overconfident. They can't have some cost fallacy, et cetera. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been as successful. They wouldn't have climbed the ladder. I mean, that was the logic. And so naturally, um, I and, and my collaborators, we had a really hard time convincing uh, um, CEOs or other top managers are really overconfident. If you're just trying to look at, you know, what they say, maybe they make forecasts and they turn out systematically to be over-optimistic, people would say, no, 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 they are rational, they knew, that's just this show they have to put on for the investors or the media. I mean, economists are great in finding excuses for, to me, seemingly behavioral, I mean, biases and you know, saying, no, no, there's some rational story underlying that. So I really had to go to some indicators of overconfidence where 
the managers kind of put their money where their mouth is. And so I was looking at their personal financial decisions. And so in principle, um, um, managers who are you know, running a company, CEOs, should try to diversify, right? They're already getting a lot of stock and option. I mean, like company value-based um, compensation. Moreover, the value of the human capital is tied to their company, right? If the company goes downhill and they are fired, probably their future opportunities are worse. So there are lots of reasons to try to um, diversify. And it turns out that there's a significant subset among very successful managers who don't do that who, you know, don't sell stock, don't um, exercise their options early, etc. Now, if I just use that, I um, would again have been in trouble because, you know, the standard brand of rational economic decision making would have said, well, of course they don't sell stock that would give negative signals and um, they are just forced to do that. And, you know, there's, of course, a lot of value to that. So looking at stock option was really a great opportunity because these executive stock options we are talking about typically have something like, say, 10-year duration, and then let's say it's a four-year vesting period, and then say after year four, at some point you have to exercise. And, and, and the market understands, yeah, the guy has to exercise at some point. There's no like negative inference from that. And so then I could just analyze, does this manager do what um, you know, rational portfolio theory would predict, trying to take into account that they're under-diversified and how high in the money the options are, et cetera, or do, is there a manager which, which keeps holding on to the option, which keeps waiting until the last moment? And can I start inferring maybe that manager thinks the stock price of my company under my glorious leadership will keep increasing? I'm just going to exercise a little later when the market has finally understood this. And that turned out to be a really good measure. So managers who repeatedly exhibit that type of behavior of postponing, postponing, is postponing. I mean, at some point you have to do it. You're right, so the option expires. Um, uh, they tend to also, I mean, talk in an overconfident manner about their firm and make all sorts of decisions which are easily linked to overconfidence, like it's merger decisions, investment decisions of that yeah. overconfident nature. But I wonder, you know, there is sort of a wealth effect issue here. There is a tax effect issue here. Um, and so, um, you know, senior execs perhaps um, are not really worried about maybe, I mean, once you hit a wealth threshold, maybe they're not that interested. I, I don't know. I, I'm just speculating here. And there's a tax effect that you have to consider too, right? Yeah, no, no, exactly. No, these are excellent arguments. So when I first started publishing work on CEO over confidence using that measure, um, so I think by now I've five, at least five papers published uh, using that type of measure. Um, that's what I've spent a lot of time at. Let's think about the different tax treatment, how it varies depending on when you exercise the option and, and, and you know, potentially separately when you actually sell the underlying stock. And um, let's try to um, show that the tax differential is either actually non-existent mm. or um, um, we can control for that. It still didn't make sense. Wealth effects, let's try to calibrate as, as well as we can for estimates of their wealth and of their risk aversion. And let's try to fold that in. And or, um, are there other things you could bring up? So, so maybe, you know, they're just not taking care of their portfolio. As you said, you know, if they accumulated enough wealth and they just let it go. So let's try to uh, find data that shows, no, no, these, I'm looking at the guys who are actively managing their portfolio. They're doing business and uh, portfolio transactions in that very year and still they're not exercising that option. They're thinking about how to optimally invest. So um, if you look at the originally published papers, the academic papers, you see that about 
a third to a half of the papers are kind of dealing with each of these arguments. And I think, you know, luckily we got it published in the top journal. So ultimately we were able to convince people it's not these reasons, even though these are good arguments. Intuitively, what I find actually most convincing in that we ended up capturing something that's related to overconfidence. And, and I should say overconfidence, not in general, just about how much the stock price of your company will increase, how increase, how much value you are creating. That's that's the only thing we are looking at here. Um, intuitively, what I found most convincing is when I found this is highly correlated with either talking to the press or being characterized in the press as somebody who's confident or optimistic and negatively cor uh, correlated with somebody who's soft, soft-voiced, cautious, and, and adjectives like this. So we did a whole textual analysis on how these people are characterized. And um, the markers of overconfidence were highly positively related. And the markers of being more you know, conservative or cautious were highly negatively correlated. So, so I mean, for me personally, I think that convinces me we found a really good measure for it. Um, of course, the academics had to be convinced about your type of arguments. <laughs> and, but I think we did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, there the two things I think about. One is sort of the strategic question, which is if, if the CEO is very strategic, he could convince the subordinates uh, by his sort of action uh, that they should hold on to their options. <laughs> I don't know if that's a consideration, right? Yes. The other thing is more broadly, you know, when I got out of Chicago, I was told that um, yeah, managers, objective is to maximize shareholder value. What I find in corporations is that the objective function is maximizing ego <laughs> of, of senior ma senior managers. So it's sort of a principal agent issue in corporations too, right? So I, I don't know, holding on to options is sort of an ego boosting thing um, for, uh, for agents. I'm not sure. I don't know if you found any evidence for that. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I think um, I, I think it's actually closely related to what we're after, right? These people who are very confident in everything they do and um, you know care about being the top manager and being featured on Business Week's uh, cover page, etc. And the overconfident managers. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between them. They're not exactly the same. So I've studied the type of um, let's say ego driven or full of themselves managers, maybe a little bit in a separate paper, which is called superstar um, CEOs. Um, so there's, it's not a one-to-one -one connection, but I would think um, they're probably closely related. And if you want to reinterpret our results as saying, um, CEOs you call overconfident, uh, who are you know investing a lot of their personal wealth in their company and don't diversify, and then they do these decisions like too many mergers, mergers where they're red flags, but they still pull through against the initial negative reaction of the market and so on. If you want to call them like ego-driven uh, managers, I you know I think for a lot of our findings that would make sense. There's some where it's a little less clear, so. If you take overconfidence seriously as a concept, so somebody who always thinks, wow, this will turn out really well, this investment project, the market might not fully understand it. The banker was trying to finance my project is asking me for, you know, giving me financing conditions that don't reflect how great my project is. Like this kind of overconfidence, 
you get additional implications. One uh, is about investment cash flow sensitivity. Um, there's a whole paper about that, how managers, whenever an additional dollar comes in, think, oh, I have another great project and invest it uh, right, right away. So I think uh, those don't quite, I mean, I'm not as easy to explain with ego, but I don't, you know, I totally acknowledge your point. The two are closely related. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, um, it has a lot of implications for, I guess, organizational structures, um, board composition. You know, do we really have a good way to measure performance? Um, or I, I think you talk about this, you know, sort of the, the board and the CEO dance that we see in corporations, they all think alike. Uh, and, you know, this, it's unclear to me that they're really maximizing shareholder value. Um, so, so I want to go into another paper. It's in a slightly different direction. So investor experiences and international capital flows. Um, you say we propose a novel explanation for classic international macro puzzles regarding capital flows and portfolio investment, which builds on modern macro finance models of experience-based belief formation. So this is also uh, sort of intuitive. So uh, if I remember this correctly, uh, Oleg, is, you know, if, if it's like a cat that fell into hot water, uh, remembers all of that bad experiences, and then all the future decisions <laughs> are based on that, right? Perfect. This is actually a great example. I might I might steal that from you with with, with acknowledgement like in future in future talks or write ups. Um, exactly. So this whole I mean there were a bunch of um, technical terms in, in in how we just described the paper. All, all correct. Uh, but um, with experience effects or experience based belief formation, um, with that concept, we are trying to capture the fact that. Um, circumstances, uh, risky situations uh, we have personally lived through in our lives so far tend to have a really long lasting effect on our future decision making, just like your your cat in the hot water. So the initial sample I start uh, studied was not in the international capital flows context, but like domestically, I, I, I looked at um, the so-called depression babies. So people who have lived through the Great Depression saw stock prices tumble, millions of dollars lost in the in a manner of days. And uh, what people have been arguing for a while, but I think nobody had shown before we did so, is that um, those growing up um, during the Great Depression, young adults or children, youth even, tended to be really averse to any stock market investment uh, until the rest of their lives. So I've been comparing people at age mid-30s to mid-40s uh, across different cohorts, and those that experienced the Great Depression were just always much, much lower in their stock market participation. And, and those few who invested in the stock market put a lower fraction of their liquid wells uh, into the stock market. So Great Depression um, was a great, you know, important example to study, but it doesn't need to be as extreme. So you can l use data basically from the whole um, 20th century or now some of the of, um, of, of the of the um, uh, 20, 21st um, and 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 look at how stock market investment relates to the ups and downs of the stock market in these people's lives so far and you get amazing predictive power so that was really interesting to us and since then we've applied it to many settings you can look at inflation expectation what we talked about earlier and related to their lifetime experiences of inflation 
You can look at a bond market investment and experience in the bond market, a housing investment and experience in house prices and, and relatedly inflation. And you always find that sure information, I mean, abstract knowledge, I mean, knowledge, information, financial literacy, education, of course, that stuff matters. Um, I, I hope we find that professors are teaching something useful, but it's amazing how powerful personal experiences are. So um, I, I wrote these papers you, you, you mentioned with co-authors from Argentina, and they give me an earful about inflation whenever I give them the, the opportunity to. And um, so a lot of these papers I just mentioned are using domestic data and kind of showing this concept that we humans just carry our history around with that. And it's like firmly anchored in our memory. It's not going to go away. No teaching can do that. Well, that also applies to the international capital market con context. So if we are thinking about, for example, um, international investors coming in, investing you know, in, 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 in a foreign market, um, they don't have a lot of experience with what's going on in that market. As soon as one crisis hits, if their first experience is, oh, the market in this country is, is tumbling, so, uh, prices are going down, they become very averse because all the experience is about that. And so that explains some of the puzzles which we have been trying to understand why they so withdraw so quickly. So these puzzles of, of fickleness and the, the different terms uh, formed for that. Also, the home bias and equity um, can be linked to that because the, the domestic investors, I mean, they don't like the crisis. I mean, they react to that. But maybe if I'm a 50-year-old investor, I've seen other times, I'm not so much moved by that. But if the foreigner comes in, he's just seen that crisis, that 100% of his experience is just, you know, the hot water of the cat, like the, the, the crisis, the downturn, of course, they are immediately reacting to it and withdrawing. So this whole concept of experience effects, which is, you know, catching on, I think, in economics in many, many fields right now, is highly relevant, I think, also for international finance. Yeah, this is really interesting, uh, Ulrich, because I was thinking that, I mean, we had two major stock market shocks, um, maybe three, 1987, 2008, and more recently in 2020. Uh, in 1987, I didn't have any money to invest, uh, but I remember, you know, my managers, you know, uh, talking about this as, as a major thing. And I had no clue what, you know, I didn't know what stock markets were. I was an engineer, so I didn't know what stock markets were. I, I didn't know, you know, what this really uh, meant. In 2008, I was investing. It was really bad. And in 2020, my daughter has a very small 401k, you know, a few thousand dollars. And she was affected by that too, you know. And so I was wondering in your data, do you have to be personally affected? Uh, for example, I, I have, I don't think my behavior changed at all uh, post-1987 stock because I wasn't investing, right? So it's not really seeing what happens. It's really what what happened to you, right, that, that affects you. Uh, yeah, so that's exactly right. And if you go um, to the biology of our body and the neurobiology of our brains, that makes a lot of sense. So one thing is to have information pass by, right? There's stock market up and down and you, you know, update your beliefs of what can happen in the stock market, but you're not emotionally affected by it. As soon as you are taking in that information and you are emotionally affected in those cases you mentioned negatively, this information gets much more strongly anchored in our in our brains. And there's really cool uh, scientific evidence on how, you know, say the firing between 
uh, whatever neuron is firing in response to negative stock market news and 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 the connection to another you know neuron this the synapse um, how if that's repeatedly happening how that connection gets strengthened strengthened and um, there this concept of long-term potentiation explaining why these effects are so long-lasting and emotion really matters for that so as a result um, we can totally understand why you reacted much more to the more recent financial crisis and then yeah, your daughter recently as she started building up her own 401k. Now, it doesn't exclude, though, that um, events that don't affect you personally also leave an imprint. So, for example, when I looked at how unemployment experiences affect consumers, so they tend to scar consumers. Um, so somebody who has gone through unemployment and difficulties earning money, uh, even years later, say, when he or she is at the stage where he's earning the same as some other person who didn't have that experience, that, that one with the experience will remain the more cautious, um, more, you know, careful spender co compared to that second hypothetical person. And um, it is the personal experience that matters most, exactly as, as you said, when you're personally affected and live through fear or, or positively, actually, so joy in, in, in good circumstances. But yeah. um, what happens around you can matter too. So if you live in an area that's a lot affected regionally by high unemployment rates, uh, I remember the financial crisis 2007-8 here in Berkeley, a lot of shops were closing, I knew people who are having difficulty, you know, that can also affect you emotionally. So you can see how that matters, even if you're not yet personally in, in investing in the market. And I do think, by the way, that's true for the famous depression babies example. I mean, it was all over the news. And I think a lot of people were fearful, even if they weren't investing. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think you talk about either this paper or somewhere else that your brain actually changes a little bit. Um, so uh, we had a lot of neuroscientists on the show and uh, you know, I think this is a very interesting uh, cross-section, intersection, I should, say, I should say, of economics and neuroscience, right? Um, you know, the cycles your neurons go through has, uh, have a re uh, reinforcing effect. And, you know, in some shows we talked about neurons having a personality in, in <laughs> itself, right? You know, um, when you fire, how you fire, um, what what you fire by all really sort of makes that neuron um, not think um, per se, but act in a way that is sort of predictable in the future, right? So there's a hysteresis sort of loop uh, yes. in there. And mm -hmm. so so in your data, do you see, do you see if you, you went through multiple cycles, unemployment is a good, good thing. Um, so you went through multiple cycles of unemployment. Are you a different person compared to somebody who just lost a job, you know, lost job and you know found another job? Yes, exactly. So I, I would say even a person who once loses a job is a different person after that. I think having gone through that, you got the papers, you had to leave, uh, go through that experience, changes you. Um, so even for that one person, I would say that. We economists who would say, oh, let's look at the income stream. Pretty good, pretty good. He got laid off, but immediately found a new job. Pretty good, pretty good again. Everything is good. We economists should be careful. We should uh, be much more actively taking advantage of the fact that we have such good data on their past experiences by now and use it. I think even for that person, it will matter. But surely the second person, hypothetical person, um, who has experienced it over and over again, will have this connection 
like strengthen that oh, job fear unemployment there's some news about unemployment you hear about somebody else using the job it will immediately trigger um, you know like uh, emotions of fear and your decision making will be affected your happiness will be affected and that's not something we economists should be ignoring um, in some sense um, the traditional economic model is very much one where you know you're born <laughs> with certain preferences let's say certain brain structure if you want to to stay in euro and then you kind of you know you learn information you observe things about, around you so you're updating your beliefs your your views of the world and you know chicago style you might do that in a very rational manner but even you know behavioral economists like me would say still true you're born with that brain and you're updating and maybe you're making systematic mistakes you're overconfident and so on but but that's it you are who you are and that's of course so untrue right biology neurobiology tells us the brain is a you know i think as neuropsychologists say use dependent organ a cultural organ it evolves in response to what we see and if we see it repeatedly certain reactions will be strengthened and you tend to go to them immediately and there's nothing to do with abstract we learned information. So we could change economics into a science that incorporates that in every single analysis we are doing. I think it would make us better predictors of human behavior. Yeah, I really like this, uh, Ulrike. So, so I want to take a, a quick uh, policy detour. Um, and so I'm a big fan of minimum guaranteed income. Hmm. And I wondered if there is sort of a foundational um safety net uh, and i'm thinking um you know the scandinavian countries um and, and other systems where the, the safety net is pretty robust um the, the psychological scars that you talk about in the brain i would imagine is a lot lower and and i wonder you know what the what sort of the long-term implications in the u.s we are the other extreme, right? I mean, everybody is for himself or herself, so to speak, right? Uh, and, you know, there is a real psychological scars that, that build up in your brain that changes you over time. So what's the, what's the policy, uh, you know, that we can impact here? Wow. So the policy with respect to uh, having a guaranteed minimum income level. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought through that. Um, I would subscribe to everything you just said. So when we economists thinking from a more traditional neoclassical perspective deal with um, um, the question of, you know, how about guaranteed uh, minimum income, then we, you know, we think about things like, well, it will lower incentives to look for a job. On the other hand, you know, there's you know, the uncertainties and you might be hit with a big shock that may completely throw you off. So it might be good to bring, we are betraying off these traditional kind of economic considerations. But the fact that living through one of the really severe scenarios of how your life could turn out if you lose your job, you don't have enough money to put, you know, food on the table and, and, and deal with basic needs of yourself and of your family, that this makes you into a different person is something that hasn't quite entered the debate. I mean, at least on us, our, you know, economist side, I think maybe the sociologists are ahead of us, the psychologists, but on the economic side, I've not seen much of it. And you are entirely right. Um, we would predict that a person who has lived through these kind of scarring experiences of losing a job, not being able to get it, not being able to, you know, um, provide for their family, 
they become very risk averse. They might not take advantage of career and job development opportunities, maybe opportunities related to um, applying somewhere else, even voluntarily leaving your job, um, which say are clearly dominant hypothetically, right? Suppose you're in a dying industry and you sh should just switch, but you may become this very risk averse person who's just holding on to what they have for now and are not able to, you know, be the most productive member of society they could be and, and, and clearly not the happiest member of society um, they could be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I completely em em embrace your, your point here. I have to think through that much more, but this has very strong implications for basically the social safety, whether it's minimum income or otherwise we want to provide to people so that the stress level never builds up to this almost traumatic um, experience um, um, they have. Yeah, so, so we have a few more papers, Ulrike. We may not get to that. I know that you, you have a, a hard uh, stop. So, so I just want to push push on this uh, just a little bit. Um, and maybe, maybe you can come back for another session if your schedule will allow. So, so going back to what we're talking about, there's also sort of initial conditions question. So if you start at a point where the probability of going through these cycles are higher because you just don't have good initial conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a recent president um, who said, I was given just a few million dollars and look what I have done. Uh, it's a total lack of understanding, right, of how society functions. So if you have bad initial conditions, then that also has a huge impact, right, on where you end up. Exactly. Um, so there are some aspects um, which um, have been studied a lot by economists. I think not quite with the awareness of this, uh, how you know, notion of how experiences scar you, which we have been discussing. But for example, if you look at people who started off their um, their experience as, as 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 a wage earner, their their experience in in work life, at times that that were really crisis experiences. For example, graduating into that great recession of 2007, 2008, you mentioned earlier, um, people have found that kind of for years after, they are kind of not catching up, they're making different job choices, they just tend to be different people than the type of people who graduated into a boom. And so that's exactly to your point that these initial conditions once set um, seem to have a huge influence on you and um, alter pretty much the life path you're taking um, from then on. And um, I think that um, the way to think about it is that as you're entering, um, whether it's the labor market in my case or financial, the world of financial investment as you're earning money, um, the first experiences coming in are at this point 100% of your experience. So they will super strongly affect you. I mean, a 50-year-old person is also not happy when the financial crisis hits, right? But that person has seen, you know, 49 other years or whenever, when they started being aware of it, which were different and knows that's not all of how the world runs. And, and that young person instead is, is just being seeing this. And as a result, in all of my empirical applications, all of my data analysis, I found exactly what you said earlier, that it's particularly the young people who haven't seen much else who seem to be most shaped by these types of shocks. Yeah, I was just thinking, Ulrike, you know, there's um, humans, homo sapiens are about downside risk management, right? Um, we don't want to be eaten by a tiger <laughs> or a lion for 100,000 years. And in the last few thousand years, we had other objective functions. 
So ultimately, it's about downside risk management. And um, when you go through the shocks, you you really you know sort of um, rewinding time back to say mm-hmm. I don't want to be there anymore. So 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 you you are risk averse. You're much more risk averse as you mentioned. Uh, when you get a job, maybe there's a suboptimum job. You don't want to switch jobs because mm-hmm. the last experience was really bad. And so we have potentially a population who are suboptimally deployed mm-hmm. because of these shocks that we have gone through, right? I mean, COVID is another good example of this. Now, uh, you know, when we come out of this, when we come out of this, uh, I, I wonder how society is going to going to be. Yeah, so that's a very good point. So one of the messages I always like to convey when I talk about experience effect is that they provide an additional angle or perspective on the effects of crises. So as as policymakers, we may often think, okay, we're in the crisis and let's get out of it. But, you know, we're maybe willing to pay up to certain costs and and beyond that's not worth it. We're not going to save Lehman Brothers, um, but we're going to save some some other bank. And, you know, in terms of pure monetary calculations, that may make sense at the time. However, what I feel is often not taken into account is by letting this crisis be stronger or letting it go on, you're going to strongly affect whole sets of the population in the long run, even when, you know, five years later, it's fixed. We're in the same state we were prior to the crisis. It's wrong to assume that these people are the same people. They make different choices now and, as as you suggested, might potentially be employed suboptimally. So in other words, this notion of experience effect gives an additional justification for pouring in money when crisis hits, for providing additional safety nets, etc. Because if you don't, you're going to alter people severely and they may make choices that will harm, I mean, even in pure monetary terms, harm the economy much more um, than the alternative. So I hope this will end up people thinking much more. Now, I do want to say, though, that sometimes... Um, you know, this notion of experience effects can be a little bit uh, fatalistic, fatalist, uh, if, if you want. You're, you know, you're hit with these crisis experience. Now you're an altered person. Too bad for you. You know, you're going to make these suboptimal decisions from now on. Well, the good news is that, you know, today's decision and choice is tomorrow's past experience. So once we have, you know, gotten awareness of, okay, these are the kind of people we are, we're very averse to taking risks, etc. Like, say, the depression babies, you know. I know everything about the equity premium puzzle. I should invest in the stock market, but <laughs> I'm the kind of person who doesn't do that. I had this bad experience. Well, if you want to change it, you can. I mean, don't put immediately all your money in the stock market, but maybe take $100, see how it feels. You know, sounds a little touchy-feely here, but I literally, as a finance professor, I, I, I would say, you know, do that, see how it feels, um, get, you know, mentally, emotionally on board with it and accumulate, you know, experiences which are bound to be less negative than the Great Depression experience and slowly build up a more positive outlook. So I hope that this increased awareness of how uh, past crises can scar us also give us the tools to kind of try to actively address it and kind of work around it. A little bit like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, in, 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 in psychology. So you confront yourself with the same situation again, but make more positive experiences and, you know, you can shape yourself if you'd like to. 
Yeah, we can we can have a whole another show, uh, Ulrike, on, on that one. Uh, so so I know that you have to go. So uh, I hope you can come back and we can talk about your other papers. Uh, but uh, but this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Uh, you're welcome. I had a lot of fun and, and, and great points, which I will also keep mulling over. Um, so I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.